This one is a bacon olive, a classic dish, which is sausage meat, seasoned sausage meat, bacon wrapped around and served with a honey mustard dressing. At the Gilbert Scott, it's quintessentially a British restaurant. The menu has been developed from the classic dishes that I don't think they've ever gone away. I just think that the chefs have moved on and done new things. So Manchester tart was a, a dessert that which I had when I was a schoolboy. Pastry base, custard, bananas, coconut, great pudding. Never really seen it on menus before. Souls in coffin is a really good example. Classically, it was a baked potato scooped out, salt put back in, sauce and baked in the oven. Great name and it's a very popular dish. Over at the Barclay, I think what the fine dining is, is more a case of my life study of work that has been grown and grown and grown over the years as a head chef. I wouldn't call it French cuisine, I wouldn't call it British cuisine. You know, it is the food of Marcus Waring. It's an extension of yourself, it's how you see food. The food will always be moving forward and we'll always be learning and doing new things. You know, there's a younger team in there than when I started 16 years ago. There's a whole new group of different people and I like to see the chef evolving. I always want them to take a step forward every day. Fine dining at Two Star Michelin in Barclay and then an English brasserie over here at St Pancras Station. The cookery is about long hours, big days, excitement, creativity, new thinking and forever evolving the wheel, you know, revolving and keep moving. Hello, sir. <laughs> now, Marcus, yeah, you have you have two Michelin stars. Yes. What's it What's it like having two Michelin? What does it mean <laughs> to you? Um, I think uh, two Michelin stars is is my life. Um, it's my life in food. Um, it, it represents my personal goals. It is a, a, a place of recognition in, for me, one of the uh, most recognized guides in the world, yeah. purely on the fact of its history, 100 plus years. It has status and it has meaning. And I think it gives you a sense of place as a chef. What, what does it take to actually get there? It takes sacrifice, absolutely. Um, you, you, set, you set sail on this journey. You never know whether you're ever going to complete the journey because you're in the hands of uh, people who give you these accolades. You just have to stay incredibly focused, very driven, um, very selfish um, to your family, to your friends, and but mostly to yourself because you're a very unsociable person. What's, what's <laughs> or I am. <laughs> what sort of hours do you work? What hours have you worked in order to get there? My hours are 16, 17, and have been 18 hours in my training per day five, but the biggest one was for the two years I worked with uh, Gordon, which was six days a week, 18 hours a day. You didn't sleep on the floor of the kitchen, did we you? We came very close. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, how did this all start? Because clearly, you know, it's, um, you, you choose to do this, it's, it's not an easy part. So did you grow up in a, in a family that appreciated food, loved food? Your, your yeah, mother my, my, um, my father uh, was a, a fruit and potato merchant, really. Um, basic food, uh, so used to serve the school meal services with fruit, veg, potatoes, carrots, back in the days when schools had real meals. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my father's precision for his basic ingredients, because he, that's how my father and my uncle earned a living. Um, everything counted, every apple counted, every orange counted, everything counted. And he um, started uh, pulling that into me uh, at the age of 10, when I used to go and spend time with him at the weekends. 
So it was been driven very hard. So you actually grew up with two things. First of all, a sort of profound sense of discipline yep. about you know, business life and so on. And secondly, for an appreciation and understanding of ingredients. Yes, yes. Um, both very much. Didn't really know it at the time, but both very drilled into me um, by my dad. And, so, and how old were you when you first sort of got the bug and you started, actually started cooking? Um, I'd say about 13, 14. I think it was just as I was coming to the end of my school days. Um, I feel very fortunate to have found my path in my life um, at such an early age. When you meet so many people and you talk to so many people in different careers, uh, different schools, universities, who are very unsure of what they want to do, it makes me feel like I, I was very privileged to have just been with a, a working class family who, who worked hard but happened to be with food. And uh, can you remember that moment when you suddenly thought, ah, that's, that's what I want to do, that's for me, cooking? Yes, because um, it pretty much boiled down to the careers office telling me that there was not all else I could have done, really. <laughs> I know how you feel, you know. <laughs> um, I was never uh, academically brilliant at school. I was very average. I, I was just like any other young lad. Um, sports was my most important subject. What did you play? Sorry? What did you play? Boxing. You were a boxer? Yeah. What, flyweight? This was the, well, you, you, you were growing, so. <laughs> this was the really funny thing about my sport. I was a, um, an, a completely non-team player as a youth. Um, I worked on my own, I did my sport on my own, and I didn't really hung, hang out with people. I very much kept myself to myself because my, my, my thing was about leaving school and then going to spend time at my dad's warehouse and going and working. And it's quite interesting because my job is all about team player. Um, and my, my bring, upbringing was always about being an individual. I think that was the hardest thing for me, that transition between um, myself and just me, and then being a leader. Do you feel, still feel yourself as something of an individual in this, in, you know, in, in, in within the kitchen <coughs> itself? Uh, yes, I do. And uh, do you find that business of having to rely on... We're jumping around a little bit here, but I think this is a really interesting point of conversation, for, both for home, for home cooks and for professional ones, is that... you know. It, did you find that business of having to depend upon other people to deliver food to a particular standard, to a particular timing, actually quite frustrating and difficult? Yes. <laughs> I, I find the hardest part about my job uh, is being able to relay your passion and your feeling for your job um, and your inner thoughts into other people to do it for you. Um, that, that's my biggest frustration in, in, in my job. And I don't know why, it's probably because I'm very driven. Um, I want perfection, um, I want it right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of leading by example, really. Yeah, me, I mean, well, this is, I mean, this has been the hallmark of your, and I think of your own sort of um, fine cooking career. Um, but when you sort of first came to public notice, it was at, um, at Petrus, really, wasn't yeah. it? That was when you suddenly burst onto the, onto the London yeah. cooking scene. Um, and, it, and how old were you when you, when you, when you got started there? <clears throat> um, my first sort of restaurant that I opened as a head chef was 25, um, which was Lauren Share two years before. That's right, so yes. All Saints and James Street. That's right, so practically 27 when I opened the sort of the real me restaurant. Mm. And you've been working with Gordon then for, for a number of years already? Yes. Yeah. And had that been an, in, you know, an instructive period of your, of your life? I think there's th <clears throat> there was two parts to my life. In fact, there was three parts to my life with, 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 with Gordon. One was the meeting him um, on the same level. Um, so we both met each other in a restaurant called Le Gavroche. 
um, uh, in, in the early 1990s. Um, he was a cook, I was a chef. Was, it, uh, was, Al, was Albert still cooking? There was a Michel. Al, Albert was just moving away and Michel, his son, was just taking over. Right. Um, there was the, the two years of uh, cooking together. He went off to Paris, I went off to, um, to, the, to America. And we just bumped into each other three years down the line, just as he was about to open the aubergine. And it was quite a funny period because we were very close friends, but sort of working friends, and then becoming this boss and pupil thing. Yes. That's when it all went. <laughs> and eventually it went. Uh, but I, know that we, I don't think we want to go into sad history. We want to explore actually the, the sort of creative and positive side of, yeah. of, of, of restaurant life. But clearly, I mean, that period was enormously inform important for you in terms of learning the business of both running a kitchen and running a restaurant. It is, Because yeah. they're not the same thing, are they? No, they're not. And, and this was the sort of the, the bit about the business that I really enjoyed was not only learning to cook along the way, but understanding the, the sort of business ethics of the whole thing, understanding the client. Um, it is very clear that a restaurant is not all about the chef. It is so much more. It's about enjoyment, hospitality, wine, great personnel, great hmm. staff. I think, that, I think that may come as a surprise to many people because we, we've all grown up in the, in the era of the, you, know, you might say, the personality chef, the celebrity chef, call them what you will, sure. where they've been sort of, you know, the dominant figure. And in a way, um, both through, through, through the media and through the relations, through, through, through their own restaurants, is that you, know, you, you feel the chef comes first. Yeah. But you obviously feel there's much more to it than, than it's just, ah, you know, oh, it's about me. It's no, not, it, not it, about it, the ego. It, it, it's not about me. Um, it's about a team. It's about a place. Um, <clears throat> I think even not that long ago, maybe 10, 10, 10 years ago, the day you would walk into a, sh into a restaurant as a vegetarian, you'd say, I'm a vegetarian. That's when the chef used to say, well, actually, no, I'm the chef, you go elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and it's quite interesting because the chef can't do that anymore. Why? Because the general public, everybody in this room and other people are, are a lot um, wiser about food and understand food, understand traceability. Food is littered through our newspapers, through our TV screens, through, through our computers. And I think everybody understands more about it. So you can't pull the wool over the general public's eyes anymore. So when people come to either you know, Marcus Waring at the Barclay or to the Gilbert Scott, what sort of experience do you want them to have? <clears throat> For me, um, the experience is being able to come, enjoy, walk away and think, I had a fabulous evening or a fabulous lunch, but I think the most important thing of all, I want you to feel like you've had great value for the money that you spent, mm. whether that's a 20 pound lunch menu or a 120 pound dinner, whatever the occasion, that we got it right, we understood what you wanted, the clients, um, and we delivered. So if it, someone comes to my two-star Michelin restaurant and wants to be eating within an hour, which is normally a very short period of time in a restaurant like that, we can deliver that. Mm. Um, but it's about enjoying yourself. Certainly, I must say, it is that thing, as a paying punter, where you know, you're confronted with a bill and there's that critical moment when you think, oh, just hand them your card with a broad smile and say, you know, please pay that with pleasure. Or, now, hang on a second, and let's go through this bit by bit by bit and work out, because if you get to that stage, then clearly this part of the experience has not quite added up as it should do. That's right. I think. And it's sort of interesting, this, that you, you, I mean, you are a chef, and therefore, food is something which you live and breathe and work through every day. And yet, 
you see it as only part and perhaps even not even the most important part of the restaurant experience. It <coughs> it's the reason why people go to restaurants. I mean, you know, you don't go to the restaurant and say, oh, do you think I'll just go and sit down and have some nice service? No. Uh, you <laughs> go to no. the food. But nevertheless, it, 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 no, food is maybe any part of the, of the equation there. I think, I think the chef is recognised more um, through, through the fact of television and media. The, the chef has become... I hate to say it, that celebrity chef thing, and I can never define what a celebrity really is myself. Personally, I'm a chef who goes to work and does a job, but I love what I do, yeah. and I'm, I, I come out and do certain things from time to time. My time out of my kitchen is about my other business, my family, charity work that I cook for, coming in and mm. stretching myself into things such as this. Uh, this is a whole new yeah. world for me. When you're creating a dish, is there a process through which you go? How do you, you know, whether it's for Gilbert Scott or whether it's for, for, for the Barclay, how do you go about finding a dish that goes on your menu? <clears throat> That's a good question. I think, I think the only way I can describe how, how, I, how we, it's not just I, because it is about my team as well. There was a point in my career where I was the only person that could put pen to paper about food and menus, and I was the only person that created it. I then came to realize that I've got also all these other creative people around me who also understand food and allow them to touch in, into what I want to do. But I have the final say. I don't know is the answer. I think it's like you ask a painter how they paint a picture. Mm. How do they know what the, cat, the finished product's going to but, be I mean, like until they've done it? Do you start with an ingredient or do you start <coughs> with, you know, you're just kicking ideas around, something else you've had somewhere else, you think, sure. oh, well, that's a useful I start? I think if I was talking to a young chef, and I have many of them in my restaurant, I always tell them to, to, to work on the main ingredient, whether it's the beef, the fish, the main, main ingredient of the dessert. Get the, 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 the central point right. Get that absolutely perfectly cooked, beautifully done, and then work off that, basically. And try and get what's in your mind and in your heart and in your love for food, and try and draw that out of yourself into this product that you can eat. And it is about the ingredients of Mother Nature, what she provides, what our supplies provide, mm. what we can find, and bringing it to the table. But seasonality mm. yeah. is the key. But one of the interesting things, it seems to me, about your, your, your own food, which I've had both at the Barclay and at, and, uh, at um, Gilbert Scott, is that I, I, I can't understand it's a collective um, business putting it together, but it still has the unmistakable sense of a single personality, in mm. a sense, dictating both the structure within a dish yes. and also the menu as a whole. So, I mean, you're clearly more than just a quality control officer in this uh, process. Uh, uh, Maybe. May um, I, I, you don't think about it, do you? No. Just do I it. don't know how to do it. You just, I just seem to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think, <clears throat> I think it relates back, if I have to be honest with you, I think it relates back all the way back to working with my dad at the age of 10. Mm -hmm. And that 10 to 15, 16 was the, 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 the five, six years where perfection was imprinted into me. And I can't, yeah. I may never hit perfection mm. anytime, but I strive for it. But also, but I don't know what it is. But that understanding of the essential quality of an ingredient and how best to be able to show it off in the course of a dish. I mean, that is something which mm. you, it may partly be our instinct, but you've also got to learn and learn and learn you and do. learn and learn. I think, <clears throat> I think with food, I think one of the most important things for me is <clears throat> I never come to work to try and reinvent the wheel. 
you can't reinvent the wheel. <laughs> it's round. And there's probably only a number of chefs in the world that have managed to reinvent the way we look and think about food. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they're one in a lifetime. Uh, I mean, Farhan is probably the only one yeah. of the modern era. Yeah. But that's interesting, that, because, I mean, um, in, in, uh, it seems to me that in, in much of your cooking depends upon sort of classic cooking techniques, but presumably also use you know, the modern technology. I mean, how much does technology play a part in your cooking? Truthfully, <coughs> never did until about four, five, six months ago, where the iPad became a massive part of my kitchen. Well, before you know, I mean, but you, you mean to say you don't have a water bath, you don't have a Paco jet? Yeah, you don't I have, have all a... those things. Okay, <laughs> excuse me. So we are talking about a bit of technology. Oh, you want to go yeah. that far? You want to go really deep? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's sort of interesting because what happens, it seems to me, what happens actually in professional kitchens in some shape or form trickles down into the domestic kitchens of, uh, of you know, people in this room. I mean, we now know that you know, there are domestic water baths which yes. are available for the, for, you know, for, for the home cook and so on. Practically everything we have in our kitchens you can have in your home yeah what's fascinating about the water bath the sous vide machine the the, the paco jet it just takes food <clears throat> to another level and it's the understanding of the ingredients and i think that's what certain magazines tv shows like the great british menu mm. um going and finding great ingredients but these machines when you understand the, the food and, and, and how to work the, 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 the machine, yeah. they create just this incredible harmony of, of great flavor, great texture, great cooking. So they can actually raise, they can be yes. used with other, they, I mean, I think there's a terrible tendency somehow, to, you know, that, you know, that um, a packet jet or a, you know, a spray gun or whatever it happens to be, you know, that is the answer to, to <clears> cooking. Like well, everything else, they're just toys, they're, they, they're tools. True. tools they, these things the are tools. Yeah. What makes food great is the ingredient, yeah. the, the main event, the supplier, the farmer, the grower, the, the, man, the, the man and the, the, the wife who look after the livestock. Mm. You know, we treat our animals better than we've ever done before. We feed them better than we've ever done before. They are better, they're healthier. I mean, I remember Albert Roux was saying a free-range chicken is a happy chicken, and if a happy chicken will taste better, there's a little <laughs> bit of madness in that method. Do you know what? But if it makes you smile and you actually think, well, at least it's not tied up in some, in some hut somewhere, yeah. just getting fat to be slaughtered, then it's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. you, but you did hint at the fact that you'd all say that, that you know, the sort of technology, the iPad or you know, even apps and so on, have a part to play in yeah. that. that. So how does that actually work in your kitchen? Well, uh, aside from the kitchen, I think the apps, the iPad, the iPhones, this, this, this level of technology can now help you shop help you when you're in your supermarket to buy, mm. tells you what food is of the moment. We've all been in supermarkets, and I, I, I don't go in them that often, but when I do, I look at some of the produce in December when I go maybe pick up some Christmas goods be Christmas Eve. Oh, your I, children I, do see you at Christmas. Your family looks easier over Christmas, Not do all they? Christmas. <laughs> and I see strawberries there. Yeah. Uh, and and um, we, we, I'm sure a lot of people have bought them. You know, you, you really need to... I use strawberries as an example because sometimes I do see them in the fridge at home and I absolutely go crazy. Why are they there? And it's about understanding the ingredients and understanding if you've got this technology and you can find, actually, it's not that good and it's not very British. The and advice it's not local. is there at the touch the of a finger. The information is right there, which was never really there before. And I think it's quite funny, how ironic, how all this equipment that we use is so brilliant for our job, yet we're in an Apple store 
with this most amazing pieces of equipment that actually are making my life a little bit easier. Do you, do you use these in the kitchen then? The iPad we yeah. do, yes. How do you use that? The what way we that use thing? the iPad um, is basically as we are creating, we are putting the information in as we're doing it, and um, we're putting in the timing, the temperatures, we um, download apps to, to bring up filing systems. Once we've finalized the dish, we can put our feeling of or what we thought about the dish uh, onto the iPad. But the most important thing for me, the two things are, is the ingredient, the recipe, the method, uh, and the photograph that I take. Because then that dish goes on the menu, and then that one or two weeks later, when you look at the same dish and you think to yourself, something's changed here, what have you done, why have you done it? And it's always this questioning of what has the chef that you've trained why has he changed it? Yeah. Now I grab one of those things, <laughs> I, I put the picture on and I go like that. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to what be. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> I love them, I think they're great. <laughs> Does anyone ever accuse you of being a control freak? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that sort of, you know, and, uh, can you extend that sort of usage, do you think, to, I mean, to, let's say, the great British chefs? I mean, let's use that as an example, because you've been involved in the, in the mm. app and the website right from the word go. Now, w what drew you into that? I, I was, um, I've always, with, with my team and my girls in the office, they have to, really, um, have to really push me into doing anything like this or even using an app. Um, but, I was intrigued by it, like I was intrigued by the piece of technology itself. So it has to be put in front of me, and I have to be go through it step by step. I found the apps the most up-to-date, right up to speed um, things that you can download, mm. because for me, they are literally of the moment. And they have everything in them, from, from the how you purchase, the weight you purchase, you know, even sometimes right down to the, to, to the final, well, actually, right down to the final dish and the look of it. So yeah. it has everything for you. It, it's and almost if, a one-stop shop. And if you can't find that wretched ingredient, what do you do then? You probably go to the next chef. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very true, you know, you and, can't always find the ingredients. And do you think that this has a sort of almost infinite possibilities as far, you know, for the home, from the home cook? I think, I think the most important thing is that we must always continue pushing the boundaries um, I, must, I, I think information is power and knowledge is important. And I think you don't realize how much people know about our world, my world, until you talk to your customers who are in your kitchen and they're looking at your kitchen, they're looking at your food and they're watching what you do and they know so much about your job and they know so much about what we do and the ingredients. You know full well you've got to stay way in front of them. Yeah, but because when everybody in this room can do what I do, then I have no, I have, my restaurant's finished. Marcus. <laughs> you know, if, Marcus. And I don't want you to do what I do at home. I, 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 I'm sure I don't. <laughs> don't do that. I, I'm sure I speak for everybody in this room. They can't do what you do because they don't want to work 18 hours a day at doing it. So, I mean, so I, think, I think you're quite safe about that. Well, I, you know, this has been a, a, a tremendously rapid gallop through, through, your, sure. through your career and through the ideas. Has, it, has anyone got any questions they'd like to put to Marcus about individual dishes, about um, his, <laughs> his, uh, his own road to, uh, to stardom and, and so on? Anybody here? This gentleman here. Gentle, the gentleman in the front here. Okay, I've got, I've got yeah. it. Marcus, Marcus can you tell us a bit about what's different between the Gilbert Scott and um, the Barclay? I mean, what's, what's the philosophy behind what you've tried to do at the Gilbert Scott? Okay, um, <clears throat> uh, long, I think 
not that long ago, chefs would put their names on quite a lot of different restaurants um, and, the, and, and the customers be very unsure of where the chef was. Um, for me, uh, the way I look at it is I have one name that sits above one door, which is at the Barclay Hotel. Um, that's the restaurant that really represents me as a person, as, as my food, my creativity, is sort of my uh, comfort home zone of my 16-hour days, and it is very much a reflection on me. The Gilbert Scott was um, uh, a building I was invited to um, in the, uh, two, two years ago um, at the St. Pancras uh, Station. Uh, a design by Sir George Gilbert Scott. And I entered into this building, I was invited to look at it, and I was absolutely captured by this amazing uh, architectural, stunning beauty uh, of, of the late 1800s. This restaurant um, represents our past, the food and the research that we've done on the Gilbert Scott, um, all of the quirky dishes that we put on the menu, or all the dishes of the past brought into the modern world by modern techniques of cookery, but done in a brasserie-style fashion um, where the Barclay is all about the fine dining fashion and that little bit of extra luxury, but both equally, there is as much fun with both of them. It's just two different occasions. I say there's, there's an enormous fun about, certainly about, well, about both places, but the Gilbert Scott is, I think, quite unlike any other restaurant in town, partly because of the magnificence of the room itself. I mean, the idea of building anywhere like that now is just unimaginable. Instead, you, the earlier pictures were not of the restaurant itself, but of the bar where they have spectacularly good cocktails. I can strongly recommend them. And it's a very fine popcorn as well. But the room itself is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a work of art. It is a fantastic. And to see it brought back to life. And the food is, if you... It, if you travel on Eurostar and you start at, and you say if you stick home from Paris, you'd stop off and have you know, a dozen oysters and some choucroute in the, the Brasserie du Nord opposite the, the Gare du Nord in Paris, and you come and you get off the train in, 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 in uh, St. Pancras, and you can go and have the English equivalent of that mm. in this magnificent. They're very, very comparable in terms of experience, except this is much, much grander and much, much nicer. But it is as Eng the food is as English as the food is French right. at the other end. But I also think that we as a nation um, have never really sang and sung the, uh, the, the British food and what we represent as a nation of food. Um, it's always been about the French, the Italians, the Spanish, and how they've lived their lives around the table, which they, which they have. We used to have amazing food in the, in the late 1800s, in the early 1900s. It was just served in the royal households and the aristocracy used to have it. Mm. And if you look back in, in, in a lot of the old cookery books, we have some amazing, amazing dishes. Um, also part of the European community, there's a lot of French influence in this country. Mm. And I think this restaurant represents that. And I think we've forgotten to celebrate what we're all about when it comes to food. This is a, an interesting part. Would you say that, I mean, one of the the hallmarks of, say, the last 10, 15 years is the way that British chefs no longer feel they have to touch their forelocks to the French, the Italians, the Spanish, yeah. everywhere. and actually it's about what I think about food yes. as an individual. Yeah, it is, and I think, I think London, this country, is well and truly on the map of food, um, mm. whether it be in restaurants or whether it's just be the way we're eating. I think you can just take Jamie Oliver as an example, you know, a, a, a chef who's just pioneering for people to eat better, you know, in schools and in various places. And, you know, whatever you think, love or hate, it's an amazing thing to do. And my father served school meals with basic ingredients, which was wiped out just as I was about possibly to go into my father's business. 
and where kitchens in schools became canteens and they bought frozen produce, frozen peas, frozen carrots, the workforce was reduced. Hence, all of these, 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 these problems we have today, which is such a shame. Well, that's from experience that yes. real food disappeared from the school curriculum. It did. And we, we pay the, a, a very heavy price for it now. And we are. So there's a gentleman here who'd like to ask a question. You have a dish that a customer loves, and customers keep asking for it all the time, but you're bored with it. What happens? You used to do the most wonderful belly of pork. <laughs> what happened to the belly of pork? It, yeah, it goes on the Gilbert Scott menu, because I am bored with it. <laughs> the thing is, though, pork is the product. Um, and there are so many other products out there. One of the products that I discovered on the, being part of the Great British menu, for instance, was mutton. And I was up against the chef, having won this TV show competition the previous year and had the fabulous opportunity to cook for the Queen. I actually cooked that belly of pork for these judges. Yeah. And I was up against the chef who was using mutton. And I just thought, this is going to be easy. Because <laughs> mutton, in my mind, was a stew. It was a second-class citizen of, 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 of the food product world. My God, was I wrong. This guy had found this mutton that had been brought up, it had been reared, it had been hung, it had been dried, and he cooked it so well, it absolutely blew my mind away. So my whole ethos was, I've got something else to go to. I will always come back to the pork, and it will always make a, 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 a visit um, back on my menus, but then I just discovered something else. And it's, I remember Matthew said to me, he said there was just this amazing explosion of flavor. And I bet you now he knows exactly what dish I'm talking about. <laughs> Park railings. Uh, exactly, absolutely, I do remember. And it's when you have that memory yes. of food, I'll never forget that. Because he held it up in front of me, this, this mutton chop, and said, here you go, eat that. <laughs> and I did, and at that point I knew it was all over. It's a, it's a, the great thing about it, I think it's a, the, the magnificent thing about great chefs, and indeed, like us all, really, like eat, have goes, you never stop learning. You mm. never, ever, oh, ever it's, know uh, enough. It's the most extraordinary. I think even as cooks at home, you'll always discover new things. You can take a, a, a food app, for instance, and you'll go through all these hundreds of recipes by these 20, 30, 40 chefs. You'll come back to it a few months later, and there'll be a whole new, potentially, batch of new things, and you'll think, my goodness me, where did all that come from? And it just keeps going and going and going. How everyone does it, I've no idea. But I think it's just the wheel just keeps revolving. Well, I think you know, the possibilities are, the great Endless. thing about it, the possibilities are, and the other thing about it is that, you know, the fact is that the, the nature of the, of, the, of the raw materials changes as well. Depends with the season, they depend on the variety, they depend on how they've been treated, yeah. everything. And you've got to learn to have that continual process of response. What's quite interesting about food, going back to the crystal ball thing about food, is who would have thought that five, ten years ago, this big chunk of computer would end up being like that now? <laughs> I'm inspired by that piece of technology, believe it or not, because A, because I use it, but it just tells you something that you just got to keep going and rethinking what you're doing. And I think food is the same, mm. because you're always looking for the next best thing. And I suppose one day there'll become a time where the chef's jacket will come off and I can start to relax about it a little bit and, and maybe not so stressed out, but trust me, that's a long way away. <laughs> uh, does anybody else have any questions? Oh, uh, there's a lady, oh, sorry, there's a lady there. Yes. yes. Um, you said yourself, um, 
It's fine, that's fine. That's okay. So you said yourself how driven and ambitious you are. Have you met all the goals you set yourself when you started out your career? No, I've not met all my goals because every time I, I do get to a goal, I've, for some stupid reason, I've thought of another one to get to. Um, no, I, I've got so much more I want to do. I have this amazing group of people that work around me that I would love to see go on and do well for themselves and I'd like to be part of that. And I think what made me feel like that, like that was I have three children at home and I now even as a father, thinking, right, what's their future? How are they going to be? How are they going to get on in life? And I think it's now I've got that. That's my sort of final goal, is making sure, put all of my personal accolades to one side. The goal of those three guys is most, probably the most important thing in my life right now, if I yep. to be honest with you. But before that, third star? <laughs> <laughs> Don't jinx me. Dang. I suppose, yes. You know, a, a, a third star is, ask an actor, does he want to win an Oscar? Of course he does, everybody wants to, and yes, I would like to, and I'll try my best. I think if I achieve it, great, it's great for the team. If I don't, at least I've had a damn good go at trying. Um, another question, anybody, there's a lady there. As a young chef, how did you cope working 16 hour days? What coping strategies <laughs> did you have? Um, it's, it's quite easy, if I have to be honest with you, because from the age of 15, when I left school, when I got into the kitchen, um, it was my whole, uh, the job that I went into. I suppose it's a little bit, it took me a little bit longer to pick it up. So my father's ethos was, if it takes you a little bit longer, just work a little bit harder. And I ended up working harder and harder. So I would never leave the kitchen until I'd finished my job. And if it meant staying behind to get myself in front for the following day, then I did that. And that's all, the, that's all my father did. And he, in the school holidays, for some strange reason, he used to work through the night, getting the wagons ready to go out on the Saturday and the Sundays. And I stupidly used to stay with him. Um, and halfway through the night, we'd be putting these orders together. Even as a young lad, I would be on the back of these wagons putting these orders. Me and my father would be doing it on our own. His brother had gone home, all the workmen had gone home, and I was there working as this young lad who was still at school. But I just enjoyed it, and halfway through the night, He'd send me off to go and get a cup of tea, and that was the last thing you saw of me till seven o'clock the next morning, because so I'd fallen asleep. <laughs> but it was, but, but, but is that combination of discipline and passion? <laughs> I mean, you're very lucky in this, aren't you, really? I am very lucky. Do you know, at, at the age of 41, I still put a 16-hour day in. I wake up tomorrow morning at 6.30. I'm out of the house by 7.15. I'm absolutely in agony when I wake up in the morning, and it hurts. But do you know what? I suppose there's a little bit of madness in me that actually I love it. I, I really adore that pain of getting into that shower, getting my clothes on and getting out before the bloody rush hour. That's the most important. That's what gets me up early, to get away from the rush hour. And you say that's a little bit of madness? <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Certainly. Just, just, just first. Yes. <laughs> Hi, Marcus. Hi. Um, I'm a home cook, and I just wanted to get a bit of uh, a tip from you, if that's possible. Something. Um, I do a lot of confit with goose duck and whatever. The goose fat, how do you tell when it goes over its, um, past its sell-by date, rancid or off? And um, Wait, when, how many times can you use it, basically? And I've never been able to find that question out. I've, I've used it more than once. Is that That's absolutely kill? fine. 
I think it's the temperature in which you use the goose fat is, is very important. If, you know, it's one of those products that the only way you can actually tell whether it's actually not quite right is it will start to smell. And it will be like food. It will just go off. <laughs> and you can smell it a mile away. I think, um, I think this actually brings up a very important thing. Is that, you know, We've stopped trusting our own instincts about this, smell and taste and so on. You know, and we want to be told, oh, that this is, you know, that's why we've got the sell-by date, that's why we've got the use-by date, that's why we've got the best-before date. Actually, yeah. just put a bit on your tongue. That doesn't taste price, very nice. We stop using it. Smell that and doesn't taste. smell quite that right. I mean, you know. It's very true. It is very true. And, it, you know, goose fat is a very tricky thing. And, and it, it's, it's a product that, A, is very expensive. Um, but if you use it wrong and it is off, you're going to be seriously ill. But I think if I agree with, with Matthew, your smell and just a little taste, you'll know. But it, it, it's un, un, unused, it'll keep forever. I mean, it's fat will just, yeah. it'll just, you know, you can have, I've always thought possibly <laughs> there's a market here for vintage goose fat. Yeah, 10 years old, 15 years old. Do you remember the vintage of 63? Oh, very fine geese. Any other questions? One last one, last, last one. question, and then we'll bring this to an end. Hi, Hi my I, dear. Um, I'm, I'm a relative of a chef, and I know how long, uh, uh, many hours you work. I just wondered how many times do you actually cook to Michelin star level for your family during the week? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't. Do you know, it's funny, I don't, if I have to be honest with you. Um, I am always at work. <coughs> when I am at home, uh, at the weekend, whether uh, Saturday or, or you know, definitely on Sundays, because that's when the, uh, the Barclays closed. Food um, is important in our house, and I will cook it with the same methods as I cook at work. I treat it exactly the same. I utilize the produce the same, and my children eat the same. The difference between my cooking and my wife's cooking is I probably season it a little bit more, and I take the flavor to the, a, a different level with my knowledge. Um, a, I'm a lot quicker, and we split it up between the two of us, so we sort of will work together on it. But I, I, I find that feeding my children is important, um, and I suppose I do cook the level of food in the restaurant at home. It just looks different. I just don't dress it the same, but the, the way in which I do it um, is, is, is very much the same. And I think it goes back to the chef. It's the humble ingredients at home and the way you treat them is the, s the same way I judge a chef. So when I have my kitchen full of the foie gras, the caviar, the turbot, the sea bass, and then the humble uh, uh, vegetables, the way to judge a good person with a chef is the way they look after the carrot and respect the carrot or the onion or the potato the same way they, they respect that piece of beef, that meat, that turbot, that, that halibut. And if you treat them differently, then you're in the wrong. You know, it's so bad because they are both um, Mother Nature's creations of food that we're all here and we live off and we eat. Well, there we are, ladies and gentlemen. We have Marcus Waring, Michelin-starred chef, a great exemplar for other young British chefs, a great example, a great a torchbearer, I think, for British food, and domestic god as well. I must say, <laughs> it's the full package. Thank you very Thank much you. indeed. Thanks so much. Thank you.